Thank you. And good morning. Yeah, it's not, I'm afraid, I've just, you, you've been rained on on your way in, were you? I was rained on on my way in. It's not a very summer shortsy kind of day. But we've been looking at the little letters in the New Testament, uh, the ones which are, I guess, too short to do a long series on, but we wanted to get them all in. Um, and we're going to be in 2 Peter today. So this is the, the last letter. So if you have a Bible and can turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, it's the last letter in the series, but we're going to do it in two parts because it's a slightly longer one. So we're in 2 Peter 1 today and then chapters 2 and 3 next week. Um, and we're going to read from two, read the whole, whole of 2 Peter chapter 1 today and then see what God has for us in it. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. 2 Peter is a wonderful little letter, I think, and it's got loads of relevance for the church today. 
And I think some of its most powerful application for us comes in what we're going to look at next week, which is in addressing the difficult subject of false teaching and false teachers. That's what a lot of the letter is about. People who laugh at Christianity, make fun of it, and people who actually undermine the integrity of the church by teaching error. That's what we're going to do next week. But this opening chapter, as we've just seen, is a beautiful exposition of the way that the humanness and the divineness of Christianity come together the humanity and the divinity of Christianity, and how they relate to each other. And both of those things, the humanity and the divinity of Christianity, were challenging in the ancient world, and they're challenging now. So when Peter wrote this letter, they were, there were plenty of people around who found the divinity of Christianity a problem with it. Said, well, I don't, I don't find Christianity plausible because of its claim to be divine. I struggle with the idea that Jesus is divine, particularly if I'm a Jew, right? And Peter's writing as a Jew, but of course a lot of Jewish people, the idea that Jesus is divine is a huge problem. But at the same time, there are plenty of people in Peter's day who struggle with his humanity as well. People are saying, How do, the idea that Jesus is a human is a problem for me. And many people in their day, as we, if you, were in, you may have dipped in and out of this series, but if you were here for the week on 2 John, you will have heard that was the key issue. People denying that Jesus has come in the flesh. People saying, I don't mind the fact that Jesus is God. I really struggle with the idea that he's really a human. That was a big issue in the ancient world. And I think in the modern world, in this city, the same two things are true. People find Christianity a problem because it's too divine or for them or because it's too human. So there'd be people for whom the divinity of Christianity is a huge problem. Many people in this city struggle with the idea that Jesus is God. The idea that he's divine. They might say, good man, but God, no. They might struggle with the idea that the scriptures are divinely inspired. They say, this is a human book. It's made, written by people. It's not divine at all. And they may struggle with the idea that God is at work in the lives of believers. So you tell them, God has done this in my life. God has spoken this to me. God is taking me here. This is what God is doing in me. People say, no, no, no. That's, don't get ideas above your station. That's just you. That's how a lot of people will respond. So in this city, there's a lot of people for whom the divinity of Christianity is a problem. But there are also a lot of people for whom the humanity of Christianity is a problem. And particularly in this city, that would be probably amongst the Muslim community. Where the the problem for many Muslims, the problem with Christianity, is not the, the divine bits. That's fine. Of course we believe in God. Of course we believe God created and that God spoke. Our challenge, with what you believe, Christians, is the the humanity of it. The idea that God can become a person. We would say, no, he can't. The idea that the scriptures are human is our problem. We like the divine idea. We believe that God spoke directly to one person, and the whole thing was transcribed in Arabic, and it shouldn't even be translated. You guys believe in a human book that's written by people over a long period of time with a narrative flow and some differences and some challenges to make you stop and think and you believe you can translate it and it's a very human text and that's what we find difficult. So do you see there are people in our world as there were people in Peter's world for whom both the human and the divine bits of Christianity are a problem. And 2 Peter 1 provides a wonderfully Christian response to them. It just teaches the humanity and divinity of Christianity really simply, really unapologetically, and in three particular areas, actually. It just shows us the humanity and divinity of Jesus, the humanity and divinity, the God-givenness, if you like, or the divine inspiration of Scripture, and the humanity and divinity of the Christian life, the idea that God and humans are actively at work in your life. All three of those things come out in this text, the humanity and divinity of Jesus, of Scripture, and of the Christian life. 
And in the opening sentence, Peter goes straight there for the humanity and divinity of Jesus. This is a great opening sentence. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a pretty bold style. That's an astonishing statement, actually. If you read the Bible a lot, you're used to those sorts of things. But you have to sometimes stand back and think, wow, a Jewish man whose people have believed for thousands of years that there is one God and that he is the creator of all that is, and they are now declaring that this Jesus is that God. A staggering. And he begins, actually, by saying, no, I'm, I knew him, effectively, by emphasizing the human relationship that Peter has to Jesus. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. That is, I was called by Jesus Christ and sent out on mission with him, and I was a servant of his. Actually, for three years, I literally was. I, would, I walked around with him. I went on fishing trips with him. I had meals with him. I was there when he called me. I was fiddling with my nets my, as a fisherman. And he called me and said, you, come follow. No, 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 not that guy. No, you, come follow me. I was there at the end of the gospel when he made me a barbecue on the beach. And we ate fish together. I have been with Jesus. I've seen it all. I've been sent out on mission with him. I've fallen asleep when I should have been praying with him. I've, been, I've kept watch when he's had to go to the loo. Like, I know this guy's a real man. And yet, I'm also in the same sentence going to say, he is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is Israel's God in person. And I'm affirming both of those things together in the opening sentence of my letter. It's an amazing claim. If you go through the New Testament looking for statements like this, you will find very few, which kind of weirds some Christians out. When you first discover the New Testament doesn't very often say, Jesus is God. Some Christians get quite worried by that. Think, but this is central to what we believe, and it is. But it's interesting that the statement, Jesus is God, or referring to Jesus as God, is very rare in the New Testament. It happens a few times. This is one of them. Usually, the New Testament will refer to God the Father as God, and to Jesus as the Lord. And those terms are similar and overlap, but they're not the same thing. But here is one of those few places where somebody just comes out and says, this is God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As well as, of course, affirming his human relationship with the man, Jesus. This is as blatant as they get. The one who made me a servant and sent me out as an apostle is God and our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus, in that sense, Peter's saying in the opening verse, is human and divine. Now jump down to verse 16, and you'll find him elaborating the divine part of it in a powerful way. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of people in his day and ours think that's what Christianity is. It's a myth. It's clever. It's convinced a lot of people, but it's a, it's a myth. And Peter says, we didn't follow myths, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. I was there, Peter's saying. Like, I'm not making this up. A lot of people could tell you stuff, and they would be having to get it secondhand. But I'm not one of them. I was actually there. I heard the voice. I saw the glory as... The, the curtain was pulled back and the divine essence of Jesus came pulsing out in this glorious, terrifying light. And I fell to the ground and thought, what am I going to do? I better make a tent for them. I was there. 
It's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, of course. It's such a matter-of-fact comment in a letter. We didn't follow myths. I saw it. Like, I, I, have you ever had that thing where there's a discussion going on, and you, they're all talking about something, that, and you were there, but they don't know that you were, and so they're talking about what they think happened, and they said, I think, oh, no, actually, she said that, and then, no, oh, no, no, I'm not sure she did, and then eventually you think, I'll, I'll, I've let them embarrass themselves for long enough, so now I'll go, I was actually there, and this is what happened. And they all go, oh, and it's all a little bit awkward, and they have to sort of embarrass, a bit of egg on face, go, oh, right, and what, what was it like? Like, none of us know what we're talking about here. I, I have had that, but I'm normally the person who's embarrassed. Em- embarrassed? <laughs> we're going to speak Shakespearean. I was embarrassed thus. Um, but I, I'm often the person who's caught out for not knowing what they're talking about, rather than the person who gets to say, I was actually there. But you may have had that, and someone goes, yeah, that's actually my dad you're talking about. And you're like, I'm sorry, that's very embarrassing. And my, my friend is, um, a, is a kind of comedian and radio, he's, he's often on the radio writing comedy shows and so on, um, quite successful in, in his field, but because he's on the radio, he's very often not visually recognized, so people don't know what he looks like, but they've heard him and they've heard of him, and so he sometimes gets this, where people don't realize that they're interacting with him, um, and so sometimes could even talk about him without knowing he's him. Um, and that's kind of funny. It creates this sort of dynamic. And he sent a couple of tweets recently, which made me chuckle in this, because he was in Leamington. You put the first one up. He was in Leamington Spa, and, uh, and he, just, he was doing it live. And he just tweeted out, I'm sitting in a cafe in Leamington before the show. Nice couple at the next table have come in for a pre-theater meal. Waitress is asking them about the show they're going to see. They're attempting to describe it. I'm learning a lot. So he's obviously sitting there. They don't know he's him, next door table. And they're going, well, I think it's a bit like this. And he's like... Oh, interesting. That's, that's not what I was planning to do. So he sent that out, and I laughed. And then a few minutes later, he sent out this. Waitress is now asking what I look like. They don't think they really know, given that something she is, one of them is looking directly at me. I think they're probably right. And you can, at that point, just go, it's me, it's me. And he doesn't. And of course, because he's a comedian, he thinks, I will just incorporate this into my show. And then I will form, in a few minutes, you're now going to be sitting in there going, sinking into your seat, because it turns out it's you, and I will embarrass you in front of all these people, which, of course, he then did. And... Actually, there's a, there's a little bit of this in, in Peter when you just go, it's me, it's me. You don't have to guess. You don't have to go, oh, is Jesus like that kind of? I wonder, I kind of think of Jesus like this. But no, 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 I was there. I was actually on the mountain. I heard the voice. And I'm telling you, Jesus is our God and Savior. I, people may devise myths, but I am an eyewitness. I was on the mountain. I saw the majesty. I heard the voice. So when I tell you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, I'm not making it up. I know what I'm talking about. And it's on that basis and the basis of the testimony of many others that Christians profess the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. It's through witnesses, people who were actually there. It's powerful. Now we believe Jesus is fully man and fully God and Jesus is the only one of whom both those things are true. But there is a sense in which Scripture is also human and divine. Right? It's not fully man, fully God. I'm not saying that. But it is also, in a sense, human and divine. And to see that, we have to go down to verse 19 and see, yeah, Jesus is fully human and fully divine, but Scripture is in its own way kind of human and divine. Verse 19, and we have, he says about the Scripture, we have something more, the prophetic word. I'll try and convince you that that is in this case that's actually talking about the bible that's not talking about modern day prophetic words we have something more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all 
that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We need to notice two things there. And the first one is really quite surprising because it sounds like he's downgrading the Bible. Because he compares the Bible or Scripture to a lamp that you need now in a dark because it's dark, but the one day you won't because the sun will have risen. Right? One day you're going to see Jesus face to face and you won't need the Bible, but now you do to guide your steps. Otherwise, you'll make a mess of everything. And the psalmist says the same. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And Peter's saying, you need this. You need scripture now for that. But one day you're going to see him face to face and you're not going to be going, what does Proverbs say? You're going to be able to say, there he is. I can see Jesus. Glory. Hallelujah. You don't need to run around going, where is my Bible reference? But you do now. You need the lamp to guide you in the dark. I was um, out in the countryside last weekend um, and I was staying... The place I was sleeping, uh, you had to cross a field to get to from the place where I was hanging out in the evening with my friends. So hanging around, having a nice evening, eating and so on, drinking. And then you have to walk across a field, quite a large field, with more fauna than I am used to milling around in this field in order to get to the place you're sleeping. And there's no streetlights. You're in the middle of nowhere. No streetlights, nothing. So you go moonlight, starlight. So you are basically, you're at that point, dependent on your phone which I'm sure is the original meaning of the Greek word lamp here, because, of course, then it, you have to get out your phone. You like turn on that little lamp. A lot of phones now have the lamp function, and so the torch, and so you're basically following along through this field. I'm thinking, I'm very grateful for that, because without me having realized it beforehand, there are a number of different sorts of species of animal in this place. Now, actually, in other fields in the area, I later discovered there were deer and, in fact, wallabies, believe it or not. But in this particular field I was in, there were sheep and cows and a horse who comes into the story in a moment. And so you're walking across in the pitch black, and you have to rely on the lamp because there's not just the animals there that you might, you know, they might get angry. Sometimes you get between an animal and, the, and it's young. They get pretty cross with you, and cows can be a little scary if they man up, you know, and kind of march towards you. Um, you've got the sheep everywhere, but of course you've also got all of the things that the cows, sheep, and horses n- kindly leave for us all over the ground. So you're sort of following around, and you need to pay close attention to the lamp shining in the dark place. Otherwise, you end up making a, literally getting in a total mess. Next morning, you come out your room, sun's come up, you walk across the field, and you think, this is fantastic. And it never occurs to you to pull your phone out and look for it for light, because the sun's up. You think, this is glorious. That's what it's going to be like, Peter says. When Jesus is back, we're going to go, yes, of course I don't need to look around. But for now, you really need the lamp. You need to follow very carefully. Otherwise, there are cowpats everywhere in life, and you're going to find yourself stepping on a lot of them, and you may, it may be worse. Right? There may be genuine danger in this field. And I, that's well, I say this is where the horse comes in, because I was walking across the field. Um, I've got the torch. And you know what happens? One person gets their torch out, but all the other people in the group are just kind of trusting that you know where you're going, and they're sort of following, chatting, and so on. And my friend Tim is a few yards behind. And we did not know there was a horse in the field. It wasn't obvious to me that horses would be in the same field as cows and sheep. And it turns out that we are walking, and like next to us, and when I say next to us, I mean I'm here, and this horse is there. You don't realize it's there. And it's 
and it sounds silly, but it is genuinely quite terrifying because they're very large animals. And he looks like the Lloyd Bank horse, you know, the sort of very dark, blends into the background. Like, I'm like, this is really frightening. And, um, and so we kind of made a, bit of, whoa, made a bit of a joke of it. And my friend Tim just thought, oh, the way to get around this one is to just make that stupid bar joke. You go, why the long face? And as he said it, the horse swung his long face, like right at Tim. It was like, whoa, terrified the life out of him. It was hilarious. We were like, you've just tried to make fun of a horse and the horse has beaten you for it. I was just so pleased that it happened to him and not to me. But of course, there's genuine danger. And if you don't have the lamp, you're in awful trouble. We could have, I don't know, what would have happened? I don't think horses would have eaten us, but I imagine there could have been a confrontation of some sort. The point Peter's making is you need the lamp if if you don't have the sun. And the scripture is that to you. You need to understand this is going to help you avoid putting your foot in it. This is going to help you avoid making a joke you shouldn't, or having a confrontation you shouldn't, or many, many other things. And that's the first image he uses for Scripture. And the second thing he then says is he speaks about Scripture as both human and divine, and this is hugely important as well. He uses, I love the phrase he uses in the, towards the end of that, that section we read in verse 21, men spoke from God. And in four words, that's a beautiful doctrine of Scripture for us, if you want four words to summarize it. Right? No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. Right? There is a humanity to this book. Men spoke. Right? Human beings wrote it. It is filled with the reality of being a person. It's about the things that human beings do. It's full of their personality and their differences. You read the Bible a bit, you'll get to know John and Paul, very different people. You read Moses and then you read Solomon and you think, I'm not even sure you guys would like each other very much. Right? You read, but Peter himself in this letter says, some of the things Paul writes are very hard to understand. Right? There is human difference and diversity in this book. Right? It contains personalities. People are interested in different things. Sometimes their perspectives on an issue, like suffering, might even are different enough that they make you stop and think, man, how are those things both true? I need to work this one through. That's often what happens. As you, It's a human book. And I love that about it. It's so real. But Peter is then instantly wanting to reinforce, no, yes, they, men spoke, but the inspiration, the governing authority of this entire book is not the human being. It's men spoke from God. So as they spoke, as people in language and culture and idiom and custom... They were speaking from God, with God providing the inspiration for all of it. It wasn't produced by their will, it was produced by God's will. They spoke and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It kind of is almost like the image, of, as odd as it is, of writing the Bible while being carried along by a river. You think, well, I'm doing it, but I'm being carried where the Spirit wants to take me. And that's a beautiful image for the way in which the Bible is both human and divine. The process originates in God, and the words you have are exactly the words God wanted you to have, but they are also expressed through very human people who really have their own personalities and interests and so on. And the way I like to illustrate this is, I don't know how much you know about jazz. I don't know much about jazz, but I know enough to have heard of Miles Davis, who's a gentleman you may have heard of as well, very talented band leader, impresario, composer, musician. And Miles Davis would, like many you know, jazz band leaders, I guess, play multiple instruments extremely well. And I think I'm right in saying that the three main instruments he would usually play would be the trumpet, the flugelhorn, and the sax. And then he has a bat, so he's got those three up at the front of the gig, I assume. And then he's got somebody over there going... And he's got somebody over here going... Like that on the piano, various other things. But he's the one who's got the kind of main solo 
instrument. And he will switch between the trumpet, the flugelhorn, and the sax according to the kind of piece. And to, you know, the notes might be the same, but the texture and the feel of the music might be very different because this instrument's a lot, it's smokier than this one, or it's brighter than that one. And I like the sound and the difference, not just the content, if you like, not just the notes. And so you'd switch, play one, you know, put it down, pick up another one and go. And that's what talented musicians are often able to do. The, mu- the musical instrument is itself not the originator of the sound. The, if you like, the trumpet is making the music, but no jazz originated in the trumpet. The jazz effectively comes from Miles Davis, who breathes his inspiration into the trumpet and produces the kind of sound he wants. And it's still under the guidance of the guy who's picking which instrument to play, but it's not the same sound as it would be if he was playing it through the clarinet or the flugelhorn or the oboe or whatever it was. Do you see the analogy? There is somebody providing breath and inspiration. That's God. He is the author and the originator of the Scriptures. But there are also a whole bunch of different instruments through whom he plays the music of Scripture. And they sound really different. And so you know, Paul might be hes a bit like a sax. And Moses, he's kind of like a trumpet. And all these different people. And the God has chosen each to play through. And the breath comes from him, yet the sound comes from them. The instruments speak from miles. Men speak from God as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's a very important thing for us to understand because otherwise people will say to you, you know, the Bible's a human book and it'll sound like an objection to Christianity. That's not at all. It's like, I know, I love that it's a human book. And that's like saying, do you know, the trumpet doesn't actually produce music on its own. You say, I don't know that anybody thought it did. I just love the trumpet. I love its difference from the clarinet. But I also know that there is one musician whose skill and breath is animating all of these in order to make the sound he wants. And that's what I believe God has done in the Scriptures. So there is a humanity and a divinity. Obviously, Jesus is human and divine. There is also a humanity and a divinity to Scripture. And then finally, Peter shows us, I guess, one of the most beautiful descriptions in the Bible, actually, of the humanity and divinity of the Christian life. Because it's an age-old question. Is the Christian life something that we do through faith and perseverance and obedience? Or is it something that God does by sanctifying us by the Spirit and preserving us and so on? And Peter's answer is, yes! It is something we do and something God does. And in fact, it's something we do because it's something God does. It is something God does. So you've got to look at verse 3 to 4 for this. Okay, It is something God does. There is a very high view in this letter of the divine agency in rescuing people and preserving us. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the world. You you can become not just a bit like God, but you can become a sharer of what it is to be God. And a lot of Christians on hearing that say, really? But then he says it, look, right there. You have, you've become a partaker, a sharer in the nature of the divine. That's one of the biggest claims that the Bible ever makes about what happens as you become a believer. It's a hugely strong emphasis on the divine side, if you like, of the Christian life. This is God's work from beginning to end. Hallelujah. Very next verse For this very reason, make every effort 
to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. God has done all of this. He's made you a partaker of his own nature. Look how much he's done. Because he has, make every effort to do all of these things in order to supplement the work that God has already done in your life. Because God has done this, you need to make every effort to do that. And you would think, I suspect, that it was not like that. You would assume that the more God does, the less there is for you to do. This is often what happens when people talk about, you know, did I choose God or did God choose me? And people generally assume... Either God did it or you did it. And if, you, if God has a big part to play, like a seesaw, you know, God does a lot, you don't do very much. You do a lot, God does a lot. You know, you see those seesaws in the park and there's a big kid at one end, a little kid at the other end and the adult gets on this end and all like that. And you think that's the relationship between you and God. Many of us naturally think that. But I don't think the relationship in the Scriptures is ever portrayed like the more God does, the less you do. I actually think the relationship in Scripture is the more God does, the more you do. It's more like blowing up a balloon. Okay, so think for a moment, this balloon, so I'm God in this illustration, as I find suspiciously often I'm God in illustrations I choose. I'm sorry about that. I hope it doesn't reflect anything deep-seated in me. But this balloon is currently un, no breath in it at all, and therefore it's not having to do anything. It's just sitting there, chilling out, being a balloon. It's like, yeah, what are you doing, Latex? I'm just hanging out, you know, not really doing anything. But as soon as somebody begins to put some breath into it and do some work, so by putting breath into it, it then starts having to do some work, which is, oh, I'm going to have to contain, I'm going to have to expand, I'm going to stretch, my goodness, this is difficult. I've got to actually do some work to contain the breath of the one who has blown it into me. And so I, I'm God, this is, if you like, our work, and so I blow in, and now the latex is having to do something. It wasn't doing anything just now, it's just sitting there. Now it's having to do something, it's stretching, it's working, it's making every effort. And then I add a bit more, and it's going, whoa, I don't know how much of this I can take. Obviously, there is a point at which you blow so much that the whole thing bursts. But you see that there is, the more breath I put into it, the more the balloon has to do. So the more work I do, the more work it has to do until it goes and blows away and so on. But you get the, get the idea that there is a, like double agency at work at the same time. That the more God the Creator has done in your life and does to you, the more you do in response. And I think that's often the way the Bible portrays the relationship. And that comes together in verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent, and his work even harder, to make your calling an election sure. What a crazy statement. Do work hard to make sure that thing which God has already done in your life. And that's the way the Bible often talks. The Christian life is both empowered and enabled by God and worked out by ordinary humans like us. And the more he does, the more you do which I love, because if it weren't for that, I'd either be going, well, God does everything, so I just sit here. Or, probably worse, I'd be going, wow, there's a lot of fruit for me to produce. I'd better try and do it all in my own strength. And the Word of God says, no, God, God gives you all of this power, makes you share it with Him, and because He has, now you do this. And I think that leaves us with a challenge, both individually and corporately. Peter's logic is, because God is working powerfully, you must work hard in response. It's very similar to what Jesus says. From the one to whom much has been given, much will be expected. That's the principle here. If God hasn't given you very much of something, you don't have to do very much to respond. God has not given me very much ability in long-distance running, so I feel no obligation whatsoever to go for long runs building up lactic acid in my system for no obvious pleasure. God has, however, given Mo Farah a very large degree of ability, and as a result, he makes every effort to add to that ability 
diligence and practice and work and diet and expertise and training and perseverance. And there's a sense in which the Christian life is like that, that if God hasn't given you anything, you don't have to worry. But because God has given us these very great promises and his divine power and made us share us with him, there's a lot for us to do to respond. And at an individual level, this is a good time of year to think about that. Start the next academic year, if you think in academic years. It's a good time. I'm actually going to do this myself on Friday. Just spend some time thinking. Take stock of the year to come. Think, Lord, what have you given me? What, is, what are you wanting to... If you, what kind of areas do you want me to make every effort in this year? And what kind of areas might I need to stop doing in order to be able to make space to make every effort in the things you do want me to do? It can be a helpful challenge. Just, what have you given me? What's, what, what am I now supposed to make every effort to supplement? But at the same time, it's a good thing for us to think about corporately as well. We've been given an astonishing amount as a church, as a community. You know, I meet people from around the world who know of this church and ask, it just how do you do that? And what's God doing? Tell us about it. It's an amazing place that's blessing us. And I kind of think, yeah, God has given us people and gifts and buildings and leadership and finance and diversity and influence that many churches simply do not have. And it's a great privilege. Very, very few churches have worship leaders who sing at royal weddings, for instance. Right? It's just, but we have, an, and there's many, many examples like that, and you would know some of them if you've been around. So you think, wow, God has given us a lot, but from those to whom much is given, much is expected. And so it's good at the start of the church year to think, God, what would you have us do to make best use of, to make every effort in, in light of what you've given us? And Steve, as we've said earlier in the meeting, is going to be sharing about that on Vision Sunday. And that's why we do it as a way of, not for the sake of, hey, we've got this great new idea. Primarily, it's to say God has given us this, and we believe that the best way of stewarding what he's given us is to do that with it. And therefore, that's what we're going to be doing on the 23rd. In the meantime, please be encouraged and strengthened by the divine and human working together in Christianity, and particularly by Peter's conclusion in that paragraph. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for... I thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he's fully man and fully God. Thank you for the beauty of Jesus. I thank you so much for the beauty of Scripture that speaks so deeply to our human condition in reality, at the same time as speaking flawlessly and divinely to us. And we thank you so much for your work in our Christian lives that we can respond and obey, but ultimately grounded in the grace of God that has already come to get us. We are so thankful for the both ends in this text and in our lives, and we are grateful. We pray you would help us steward those gifts well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.